Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most grisly, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland are examined and profiled. This season, season two, teen killers are discussed and profiled. On this episode, the season finale, teenage murderer, 13-year-old, Brian Lee Wansom is profiled and the unsolved homicide of 25-year-old Ebony Moore is examined. Now, I've talked to, I've written, I've communicated with a lot of convicted criminals and murderers in my career as an author, as a podcaster, and researcher of homicides. Some of them were young, some were old. Some of them murdered kids or the elderly, and even a few of them were sexual sadists. Some of the killers I've talked to murdered their partners or their grandparents or their parents, and most of the murderers I've interviewed had their various reasons about why they did what they did, if they felt remorse, if they were sorry, blah, blah, blah. You know, some had remorse and regretted their actions, and there were some who did what they did and felt absolutely nothing. Then there's criminals and murderers like 13-year-old Brian Lee Wansom. And no other teen murderer has intrigued me like this one. It has been reported that since the age of six, Brian suffered from several mental illnesses and traumas that included bipolar disorder and PTSD. By the time he was 13, Brian had already committed dozens of thefts and burglaries throughout his neighborhood of Laurel. During one of those home break-ins, the resident came home and found this kid eating his food and watching porn on his computer like he lived there. And at just 13 years old, the same teenager climbed up to a third floor balcony, the third floor apartment's balcony, came in through an unlocked sliding glass door, and once he got inside, he came upon Harriet Pepper, who was sleeping in her bed. This kid stabbed her numerous times before her screams finally made him leave. Nobody even knew that a kid was responsible for this attack until much later. Now, after his mother found stolen stuff from the burglaries in his bedroom, she herself contacted the police and Brian was arrested and charged for the burglaries. Now, because he was charged as a juvenile, he was sent to the Chetlaham Youth Detention Center in Brandywine which is in Prince George's County, and he was sent there to await his court date. When Chetlaham opened up in 1937, it was known as the Chetlaham School for Boys. Twelve years later, it was renamed Boys Village of Maryland. Then it was called the Chetlaham Youth Facility from 1992 until 2016, 
when it was renamed again the Chetlaham Youth Detention Center. The center's main purpose is to serve as a holding facility for male teens or adolescents who are waiting to go to court or who are waiting to be placed in whatever court-ordered treatment facility or programs for crimes that they have committed. Now, this center serves mainly kids from Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Anne Arundel County, Calvert County, Charles County, and St. Mary's County. Chetlaham is supposed to provide medical, educational, and counseling services to the kids while they wait to see what punishment, if any, they will receive. The kids there are, expo- are expected to go to school there all year round, five days a week for six hours a day. Brian had been receiving his specialized care and education through the county school system up until he was sent, until, sent to Chetlaham. Now, Shetlandham houses only males, and the institution can serve up to 72 kids. All of the kids that come to Shetlandham receive a behavior health screening and a health assessment to determine where they will be placed in the institution. And when Brian was sent to Shetlandham, he received the same assessments because he was sent there on some burglary charges and nobody knew about the attempted murder he committed. He was allowed in with no problems and no issues. 65-year-old Hannah Wheeling was a teacher from Bel Air who taught general studies at Chetlaham. Co-workers described the teacher as being very dedicated to her job and passionate about working with troubled teens, especially males who needed help. Five days a week, she would make the 80-mile, 90-minute, one-way commute to her job to help these kids out. On February 17, 2010, the beloved teacher had been giving Brian a test that she prepared for him. He had been placed in the Murphy Cottage and in the Redirect Program, which was a lower security unit program for teens who are determined not to be a danger to themselves or a danger to others. According to her co-workers, Hannah would spend hours preparing her lesson plans for her students, and around 4 p.m., she was last seen giving Brian a test that she prepared. Later, around 5 p.m., Brian was seen running up the stairs aggressively and suspicious and in a suspicious manner. The next day, 14 hours later, on February 18, 2010, when co-workers started coming back to work, Nobody thought it was strange that Hannah's car was still parked in the parking lot from the night before. It had snowed hours it had snowed for hours earlier that night, and they just assumed that maybe she had gotten a ride home to avoid driving the eighty mile commute in the snowstorm. Little did they know, something more sinister, more evil had occurred. A co-worker found Hannah's nude body half covered in snow Around 7.45 a.m., Hannah's face had been beaten and crushed with a concrete cinder block so badly that she had multiple skull and facial fractures, leaving her barely recognizable. She had also been strangled with a lanyard that was found nearby. When the police and the paramedics were called, the teacher was pronounced dead at the scene. Later, it was determined by a medical examiner that she had also been brutally raped after she had already passed away. What kind of modern-day serial killer monster 
would do something like this. Turns out the killer was very easy to find. Within minutes into their investigation, detectives found three shirts, all with blood on them, that were just loosely and poorly hidden under a stairwell. Of course, the blood belonged to Hannah, but the label inside one of the sweatshirts that was found with blood on it listed a name that was clear. The name on the bloody sweatshirt read Brian Wansom. The detectives immediately questioned the 13-year-old. Brian told the detectives that, yeah, he was there, but he ain't do nothing. I mean, what a kid. With his DNA and blood all on the lanyard that he used to strangle her, his DNA on the bloody shirts as well as on her body and in her body, Brian was arrested again and charged with the first-degree murder and rape of Hannah. Held without bail, at first for a short time, Brian was charged as a juvenile. Prosecutors literally begged the judge to ignore his young preteen age and to charge him as an adult because this homicide was just too brutal, too horrific, too bizarre, too serial killish to even chance that when he would be convicted of murder, because they were confident they were going to get a conviction, that he would that he would never, ever, even ever have the remote possibility of being released at 21. They swore he was a huge and tremendous threat to society despite his young age. And because he left so much of his DNA at Hannah's murder, detectives were able to link his fingerprints to prints that were left on the knife that was used in the attempted stabbing murder of the woman he stabbed in Laurel. At a hearing to decide whether to try him as an adult or as a juvenile, his public defender argued that because Brian suffered from mental illness, including bipolar disorder and PTSD, that he should be tried as a juvenile. Brian is emotionally, chronologically, biologically, and neurologically, neurologically a 14-year-old. He is probably even younger than that when you take into consideration the problems he has. Putting this child in an adult prison is not suddenly going to make him an adult. This is a critical time for him if he were in a juvenile facility to be rehabilitated and treated. And now that time is going to be wasted, his public defender argued to the judge. A clinical psychologist testified saying that even though Brian suffered from mental illnesses, technically he was not insane and he knew exactly what he was doing. He said the teen was basically just pure evil. He was without a conscience or empathy. The judge heard both arguments, took into consideration the brutal nature of the crime as well as the necrophilia that had occurred and he decided not to risk public safety and Brian, now 14, became the youngest person ever in Maryland at that time to be charged as an adult with first-degree murder. Knowing that if he were charged as a juvenile, the maximum, the maximum sentence he would receive would be detention up until he was only 21 and released back into society. Combined with the prosecutor, the prosecution saying that Brian would need decades of intensive mental therapy before anybody would ever even consider letting him walk the streets again, the judge, 
Although he was concerned and worried about how he would be treated and his safety in an adult prison, he wrote in his ruling that the court is simply not prepared to accept the risk of his premature release at the age of 21 or the chance that he would be willing to end his destructive behavior to those around him. Plus, the judge noted that because he had brutally murdered a staff member, none of the juvenile facilities wanted him anyway or were willing to accept him because they determined that Brian was just too dangerous. In the end, Brian confessed to everything and pled guilty to everything he was charged with. At his sentencing hearing, where not one member of his family attended, not even his own mother, the woman who he had stabbed in her Laurel apartment, she did show up, and she was allowed to read a victim impact statement that read, I hope you were put away for a long time, and during that time, I hope you will reflect on your life and realize the hurt and pain you have put myself and others through. Not forgetting the anguish you have caused your own family, it's too late to say you could have made better choices in your life. Serves right, she said. The assistant state's attorney was more direct, more blunt, when he said he is a full-blown sociopath, childhood-onset antisocial personality disorder. That's not criminally insane. That's dangerous. Now, childhood onset antisocial personality disorder is defined as a disorder that causes people to have a strong disregard for feelings, you know, for the feelings, well-being, or interests of other people. And these people often act on an impulsively narcissistic manner, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the consequences, and regardless of how their choices might have, what effect they might have on other people. At his sentencing hearing, Brian answered questions like he just woke up with tired yeses and noes and showed absolutely zero emotion, had no reasons why he did what he did, zero excuses, said and did nothing, offered no explanations, nothing as the judge told him, at this juncture in your life, you are not fit to live in our society. And he sentenced a teen, who was then 15 years old, to 85 years in prison for the first-degree murder and rape of his teacher, Hannah Wheeling, and the attempted murder of his neighbor. After he was sentenced, the state's attorney said in a statement to reporters for the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun, it's a tremendous tragedy and there's no answer for why a 13-year-old boy is capable, would be capable, of killing and raping in the manner he did. But we are now satisfied that we have removed the threat from our community. It's sad on so many levels. Those who rape in our community, who kill in our community, are not fit to live among us. Since the state of Maryland currently does have parole, Brian will be eligible for parole when he is in his mid to late 50s. Now, back at Chetlaham, after Hannah was killed, her murder received national attention and calls for changes to the security provided for staff members at juvenile detention centers were demanded. Her murder left a lot of unanswered questions like, 
How could a 13-year-old manage to not only beat and strangle his adult teacher on the property, but also to drag her body down a flight of stairs onto some snow outside and rape her? Basically, mutilate and violate her corpse or dead body without anybody seeing any of this or any of it being caught on camera. This was just unacceptable and inexcusable, and there had to be consequences paid, and there were. First off, the whole redirect program was closed and shut down indefinitely. Second, two staff members were fired, two other staff members were suspended, and the superintendent was demoted. The Shetlaham did upgrade security, and they added more cameras and better lighting. And to honor Hannah's memory, the library was named after her in her honor. A garden was also planted and named after her. Now, geez, I mean, this crime, this murder was notorious in murder. And this this murder was notorious in Maryland because this, the age of the murderer, 13 years old, strangling, beating, raping his teacher while he's already there serving crime for burglaries. And then at 13, you know, scaling a third floor apartment building to get into someone's apartment or house going through all that effort to go out to kill this person at 13 i've never heard nothing like it you know i've, I've studied killers all my life or since i was 12 or whatever um i've, I've heard about the you know the bomb the Dahmers, the bundies and son of sam's and all of that but to show this type of brutality this type of uh this type of evilness at 13 is unheard of it's unheard of and he was an african-american his teacher was white you know this whole crime was just a big it was it was disastrous i mean i can't even imagine what his home life was i tried to you know find his mother tried to find somebody to talk to to see if i can get some type of feedback on what kind of way did this kid grow up you know i would love to see what type of childhood he had you know i would love to see what it looks like face to face to see what just what antisocial personality disorder looks like to stare that in the face to see exactly like were you born this way was this born evil or did he always show signs of being screwed up or was he made this way um i've written brian several times several times uh because of covid uh, I was turned down a visit, a recent visit I was supposed to have, but um, I'm going to have to keep you upgraded or updated as to when the next visit will be, because like I said, I've got to talk to this person and see exactly what that looks like. You know, I've tried to get a hold of uh, his mother, but to no avail. I want to see how he grew up. Um, I don't even know what type of treatment there is for this quote unquote personality or anger disorder that he has if there's any treatment um i thought he looked uh, the pictures that uh the baltimore sun posted of him and you know the other magazines i thought he to me my opinion i thought he looked older than 13 anyway i thought his appearance made him look a little bit older he didn't look uh 13 he looked to be past for 18 19 year old to me um i read somewhere in the baltimore sun that he wanted to go to Patuxent, 
But Patuxent was like, no, mm-mm, can't come here. You killed a staff member, so they didn't want him here. So they put this teenager into the most maximum security prison that Maryland has right now, which is North Branch, and that's where he's serving his time at. Um, it's a shame about what happened to his teacher. I can't even imagine. I'm, I'm, I can't even imagine what her thoughts were. Um, you know, she's trying to help a student, and she's probably assuming that she's in a safe environment, and he just snaps and kills her for absolutely no reason and to show signs of necrophilia at 13 years old I something was wrong with this kid's mind um it's just an all-out tragedy because she was a dedicated teacher um she drove it's not easy to drive from Bel Air to uh PG County I know because I'm from Maryland and and this was like 90 minutes one way that's dedication. That's dedication, and this teacher had it. And unfortunately, she met her demise with this monster who was disguised as a 13-year-old kid. It was an unbelievable story. And it will remain a notorious story in the state of Maryland. This episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting death of 25-year-old Ebony Moore. On Thursday, December 13, 2018, 25-year-old Ebony Moore went to the Department of Social Services building on Reedbird Avenue in South Baltimore, Cherry Hill to add her youngest child to her case. As she waited, she went across the street to get two loose ones, or as we Baltimoreans call, cigarettes. When she got back to her car across the street and got in, Suddenly, someone approached her and shot her several times as she sat in her vehicle. 911 was called and the police and paramedics responded at around 1.23 p.m. Ebony was rushed to Maryland's shock trauma but pronounced dead shortly after. A witness gave a statement to reporters for WBAL-TV that read, I, just, I had just gotten in there. She apparently had just left... And then the guy came running in and said somebody just gotten shot. They put it on lockdown once it happened. Nobody could come in and nobody could come out. And then once the police came, they started letting people come in and out. Some people had other people waiting for them outside in the car and it was just chaos. The workers were really shook up. Now, Ebony had lived in the 700 block of West Saratoga Street with her mother and her two kids, a six-year-old and a five-year-old. She was affectionately known as eBay, and her murder devastated her family and friends. It's just messed up, like really messed up. Sad to hear that, that, and then the kids, like yeah, it's messed up. That's what a neighbor and a friend commented to reporters for the Baltimore Sun. A cousin commented, Ebony was a good person and whoever hurt her I hope they get justice for it because life is too short. She was too young to be dying. I just want the killing to stop. All the violence needs to stop. There's too much violence. Another cousin said to reporters, Ebony was very outgoing, smart, and fun to be around. She loved to turn up. We turned up together. I'm going to miss her. 
She was a sweet person, so I don't understand why someone would want to hurt her. She was so nice. She had a big heart. I'm just devastated. And a candlelight vigil held after her death. A friend said, for somebody to even want to do that to her, to me, it's a wake-up call. A lot of people should wake up from this period. That young lady did not deserve this. Another friend said, it's hurtful how the city is. All of us are supposed to grow up with each other and make life better. They make life worse just killing each other and then doing nothing but hurting us more. Although the Department of Social Service building is literally around the corner from the Southern District Police Station and the shooting took place directly in view of DSS's surveillance cameras, detectives still don't have a clue, a motive, or any suspects in this unsolved homicide. Come on, people. This young woman was a mother of two kids. Let's work together to get this one solved. Imagine if this was your friend, your sister, your daughter. If you have any information at all that can lead to an arrest or conviction, please call Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100 or 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also submit a tip online at www.metrocrimestoppers.org or you can text a tip to 443-902-4824. You can remain anonymous, people. Once again, those numbers are 410-396-2100 or 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also submit a tip online at www.metrocrimestoppers.org or you can text a tip to 443-902-4824. Surely somebody knows something in this case. You can't remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on new and upcoming spine-tingling episodes. Also, please be sure to check out all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 2009-2020, to 2020, which is an upcoming release. All of these true crime books, as well as my other real-life all-true books, are available on Amazon.com. Be sure to tune in next season, where relationship or boyfriend-girlfriend, husband or wife murders will be examined and profiled. Next season, season 3, will also profile one unsolved homicide where the victim was transgender. It seems as though transgender homicides are completely ignored. It seems like they have to solve themselves. Well, on this podcast and for season three, their murders will be examined and profiled on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a real life production. Thank you so much for tuning in. See you in season three.